good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato, and I'm also honored to serve as the moderator at today's book forum. Uh, with potential inflation and unsustainable deficits facing our nation, uh, Chris Whalen, the author today, has come along with a book aptly titled Inflated that reminds us that such has frequently been the state of affairs in America. Tracing the history of inflation and debt from the founding of our republic up to the current day, inflated reminds us that money and credit have played central roles in our history and politics. Uh, indeed, many a presidential election has been determined by the candidate's position on issues such as gold, silver, greenbacks, and dollars. <coughs> inflated also reminds us that few issues in history have been as closely linked as war and inflation, both serving as an enabler for the other. Uh, there are also, these are just a few of the themes in the book. Uh, and despite the technical expertise of the author, which I will talk to in a moment, this book is very accessible uh, and it's easily readable with anybody with an interest in economic history. Uh, I want to welcome all of our speakers, the first of which will be the author, Christopher Whalen. Christopher is co-founder and managing director of Institutional Risk Analytics, a banking, reigning and consulting firm. He is widely recognized as one of the most insightful commentators on banking and financial issues, appearing regularly on CNBC, uh, Bloomberg, and others. His full bio is on the dust jacket of the book, and I encourage you to read that as well. Uh, here to offer his comments of the book uh, is Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research here in D.C. Dean is also one of the most widely cited commentators on economic issues. He writes a weekly column for both The Guardian and Huffington Post. He is also one of the pro most prolific writers I know. I believe he's written eight or nine books by my count, uh, the most recent of which is titled Taking Economics Seriously. Although I'll have to say my favorite still remains the conservative nanny state, how the wealthy use the government to stay rich and get richer. Uh, with a title like that, it could almost have been published by Cato. Uh, <laughs> our final our final discussant will be uh, Alex Pollack, who is a res currently a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Prior to joining AEI, Alex served as president and chief executive officer of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago, a position he held from 1991 to 2004. Alex's latest book is titled Boom and Bust, Financial Cycles in Human Prosperity, which I will note conveniently comes in a pocket-sized edition. Um, and we will have copies of each of these books uh, available for purchase uh, and signing by the authors after we conclude. So I want to thank you for coming today and thank our speakers and turn the podium over to Chris. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark, and uh, thank you to uh, our discussants. I'm very uh, flattered and uh, pleased that Cato put on this event. And I invited my good friend Alex Pollack, who uh, I have been co collaborating with at American Enterprise Institute in a series that we have uh, titled The Deflating Bubble. And this has been going on, what, three and a half years now, and we're still not done. So I wrote this book in part uh, at the instigation of my good friend David Kotak, who is uh, the organizer of our annual fishing trips to Maine and is also one of the most uh, brilliant and insightful economic observers I know. David runs a couple billion dollars in municipal bonds. So you can imagine he's been busy lately since my other good friend Meredith Whitney has been on TV predicting the apocalypse. What I tell people about Meredith is she's in theory right, but she forgot about politics. And that's really what, I, what drove me to write this book was a lot of my friends on Wall Street who are brilliant analysts have been examining the crisis and in 
most cases, they've only gone back about 10 years. The trouble with that is that if you only go back 10 years, you're still in the Greenspan era of easy money when we were able to levitate a country with declining industry and rising legacy expenses for basically our parents and grandparents uh, and make us all think it was 1970 again. Uh, the thing I found most remarkable about the latest boom was that it kind of reminded me when I was a kid here in Washington, D.C. and my parents, Joan and Richard Whalen, uh, would go around buying little houses for 70, sometimes 80 percent debt and rent the house for a few years, and then you would turn around and sell it for twice what you paid for it in less than a decade. I remember when Fritz Hollings retired from the Senate, and he called me and said, Chris, you want the house back? I'm going back to Charleston. And I said, no, Fritz, uh, I remember what Dad sold it to you for. He wanted a little over a million dollars, and of course the house sold immediately, 3846 Macomb Street. I think it's important for us to have context and to think about our country a little longer than 10 years or even 20 years ago. Because if you do, what you find is that this free enterprise society of ours, this libertarian republic, has always taken a bit of a license when it came to matters of finance. A lot of people who read my book are astounded that Abraham Lincoln is, in fact, the father of paper money, and that the necessity of war and of r really keeping the republic intact drove him to turn to a great Ohioan named Salmon Chase uh, and basically said, go out and finance the war for me. Most people don't realize that this is why we have national banks. In the textbooks, we're taught that national banks were created to provide us with a sound currency and that there was rational design involved. Well, no, these were agents who were going to go out in competition with the state-chartered banks and sell the debt of the federal government, which nobody wanted. In fact, when they first issued greenbacks, it might interest you to know that they bore interest. This was a little notice provision that was deleted by the Congress a few years later, but they were so nervous about issuing these green pieces of paper that could not be redeemed for gold that they actually turned them into bonds. And that is the proper image. So we go through that century of great growth and great chaos when we had no central bank, remember from Andrew Jackson to 1913, there was no Fed. We just had the Treasury. They issued money through the national banks. And before that, they just issued money. The Treasury basically competed with the big banks in New York, who were their agents. The banks collected the single biggest source of revenue in this country, tariffs. Until World War I, tariffs were the single largest source of revenue to the federal government before we were all taught that tariffs are evil and that protecting one's domestic industries from competition off sea, overseas is you know, a violation of the ethic of free trade. But I think the most impressionable or the, the part of the book that got me most excited and I think also most concerned was when I went back over World War I and World War II. And when you see the change that was made uh, by having our country drawn into yet another European conflict. You know, most Americans either don't know or have forgotten that the Europeans spent the better part of 300 years killing one another. And when they showed up on our doorstep in the first decade of the 20th century, uh, announcing their intention to do it again, they were broke. Neither the British or the French even began to have the resources to fight a war, nor did the Germans for that matter, but they had certain advantages. 
I, I noted Clarence Barron's writings at that point where he referred to German trade, not military expansionism, but trade as the ultimate weapon that was turned against American workers. So we emerged from the war, which conveniently enough helped us out of the Great Depression. And somehow or another, we enshrine FDR as our savior, because he did indeed lead us through war. And we create this ethic that says America is the greatest country in the world. We are a free enterprise society. But by the way, we're also a large state socialist economy, where the military were large industries that got us through those two conflicts with government sponsorship, uh, are now basically calling the shots. Now, my friends on the street who've been writing about the crisis of the last 10 years or so are very surprised to hear that the bankers are in charge. Now, if you read my book, if you go in the back and read some of the wonderful uh, works of that period that I drew on, the bankers have been in charge from day one. Uh, I gave a speech out in Indianapolis recently, and I had a couple of proposals at the end. And the one that got people really fired up is I said, look, let's give the Fed back to the banks. How much worse could it be? The thing I worry about, especially after completing uh, work on this book, is that the banks uh, are really the least of our problem. I see the Fed as bailing out the Congress, of making the Congress uh, able to avoid decisions, able to avoid a democratic conflict. Because the essence of our society, if we are indeed to endure, is checks and balances. What does that mean? It means conflict. It means that you have to fight every day. When you hear somebody calling for consensus, you know you're in big trouble. All right? Alfred Sloan, the great leader of General Motors, famously said when he was going to a board meeting and everybody at the table was in agreement, he said, no, we're not going to vote today. We need to go do some more work on this issue and develop some differences. Now, unfortunately, in our case, uh, you know, the the, the conventional wisdom has been such that the prosperity of the post-war period made us able to ignore a lot of these inconsistencies and these conflicts in our system. So here we are today with our state and federal government facing a lot of obligations and liabilities that they probably can't fund. And I recalled the words of Alan Greenspan who said, yeah, you're going to get your Social Security payment all right. The question is, what will those dollars buy? So I will cut my comments short at this point because I want to hear the other commentators. But, you know, I, I wrote this book because I, not so much because I want to tell people the way it was or how I think it was, but because I think we need to have a conversation about these issues. In particular, I think the United States needs to invite all of our allies to Washington or maybe we could go back to Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. <laughs> and we need to have a conversation about whether the dollar should be the sole means of exchange or the primary means of exchange in the world. Because as I said to a number of people since putting out that book, where do you think the dollar would be if it was not subsidized by the fact that the entire world puts oil and major commodities through the dollar? It's not the Chinese owning our treasury bonds that's the problem. It's the day that we convince the rest of the world that they do not want to use dollars for commerce. That's when the dollar starts to collapse. I think that we need to have that conversation now at a time of our choosing so that we can, once again, regain control of our economy. Because look at the Fed. The Fed today says that they are operating with price stability and full employment as their criteria for making decisions, but they are the world's central bank. The Irish, the Germans, everybody's lining up to get a bailout loan from Alan Greenspan. He doesn't have authority to make those loans. 
So I think it's very important for us to go back to some of the money issues that we haven't had to talk about for 100 years or more. And uh, I'm looking forward to the comments from our participants. Thank you. Okay, thanks, uh, Mark, for inviting me, and thanks, Chris, for the comments. I I've enjoyed, I've gotten to know Chris a little bit uh, through email, and I've been reading his, his risk analytics, and I have to say I find it very interesting because having been through, you know, many, many economics meetings and everyone telling me everything was just fine, you know, everything was just okay, you know, 04, 05, 06, 07, it was nice to have someone who's a little skeptical here like Chris, um, so I appreciate that. I should also say I really enjoyed the book. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating book, rereading a lot of history. You know, some of us, most of us are familiar with the greater or lesser extent, a very interesting account. So I really enjoyed that. Um, also, just to, you know, some of the things I think that, that Chris has emphasized, I think, is, you know, certainly very important, the connection of, of inflation and war. Um, you know, it's a point very, very well taken that, you know, we, we – we should take seriously the decision to go to war. I'll just put it that way. And, you know, if we're, we decide we're going to have a war, we could argue whether we think it's just, whether it's necessary. But good point to say is we should be prepared to pay the price. And, you know, it's kind of straightforward. If we think we're going to get a lot of people killed, a lot of people in another country killed, we should be prepared to pay the price, talk about that openly. So I, I think that's a point very, very well taken. Um, also, another point I really valued in the book is just the going over the historical account, because it's easy to forget that we used to have these debates about banks and, you know, about money policy. That was very much at the center of the national debate for, you know, certainly through most of the 19th century. And, you know, now we have this idea that that's something, you know, we, we have the, the, the temple over there at the Fed that we're not supposed to talk about. And, you know, I, I, my view has always been that um, I, I personally want to keep the Fed, but I'll just say in terms of, you know, how I see that, uh, we're, we're often given the, this distinction that if you criticize the Fed, you want Congress setting interest rates. And my view is I, I see it like the Food and Drug Administration. I don't want Congress to decide which drugs get approved. On the other hand, I absolutely do expect Congress to be giving guidance and oversight to the Food and Drug Administration. So if we go two years and they haven't approved any drugs, probably should be asking what's going on. On the other hand, if they've approved thousands of drugs and people are dying from them, same thing. You know, so I expect Congress to be exerting oversight, and I'd say it's the same with the Fed. It's totally appropriate for Congress to be saying, what's the state of the economy? Ask about inflation. Ask about unemployment. What are your plans? You know, you're targeting price stability. You're targeting full employment. Are you doing that? You know, are you going to get, you know, to full employment, however defined? That's Congress's job. So I don't see that as, as being um, political interference. I see it exactly as being their job. Okay, so now where do it, where will I differ? Obviously, lots of places. Maybe not obvious to everyone. Um, I, I I don't consider inflation the worst sin. Um, you know, I I look back over much of this period. I'll particularly focus on the post-war period, when I see a period of relative stability. So we go through the period, uh, the 40s, 50s, 60s, even the 70s. Um, you know, we had relatively low rates of unemployment, uh, relative economic stability. We didn't have large downturns. Um, you know, that really something you could say pretty much right up until uh, the, the crisis in uh, 2008. Uh, we could argue over how we want to talk about 81, 82. In any case, that what I'll say is the positive. I've said many, many negative things about that, and I will say many negative things about it, but the good thing was it didn't last that long. We recovered fairly quickly. And I would just juxtapose that to the, the 19th century pattern where we had sort of the cycle of 20-year 
crises, you know. So we had 1937, 1957, uh, I'm sorry, 1837, 1857, uh, 1873, we switched to threes, you know, 1873, 1893, and then we're back to sevens, 1907. I mean, all of which we have good accounts in, in, in Chris's book. But that's not, to my mind, an enviable track record. I, I wouldn't be willing to go back there. Um, and just, again, to, to see how what I see is the fundamental problem, again, I, I could understand we'd rather have lower inflation than higher inflation, um, and certainly the inflation in the 70s is higher than I would like to see. But to my mind, you really can't do worse than having people unemployed, people who want to work, who have the skills to work, the ability, and they don't have jobs simply because you don't have sufficient demand in the economy. And I really do think we have that as a serious problem. I think we have that today. We had that in the Great Depression, and I would actually say at many, many points in between. So if the, the question is, would I be willing to say, okay, we're going to have a central bank, we're going to have federal policies that lead to somewhat more inflation and somewhat more debt um, at the cost of, uh, or I should say at the benefit of maintaining something closer to full employment, I would take that. I would take that because I just, uh, I think there's nothing worse we could do than tell someone who wants to work, has the skills to work, that they don't have a job because we've mismanaged the economy. Um, so, so that's where, you know, I, I'm would say I differ very strongly. One last point I'll just say, because I know other people want to talk and listen back and forth, but just one last point, uh, how we think about that, how we talk about that. You know, you know one of the points, I, I don't know how many times I've been on panels with people who are going on about the, the deficit and the debt, and it's going to be tens of trillions of dollars, I mean, forecasting out. I mean, we know the debt today is in tens of trillions of dollars, but the debt forecasting out. You go, well, someone is at the other side of that. Um, so, so, you know, the idea that the country is going to be impoverished because we're going to have the tens of trillions of dollars of debt, well, someone is at the other side of that. Um, so it can't collectively impoverish the country. Um, I don't mean to be glib on that, but the point is that, you know, the country at the end of the day, the wealth of the country is determined by our, our productive capacities. So if we're getting more productive, which thankfully, even in this downturn, we are. We've had good productivity growth even through the recession, which is quite striking. I was surprised by it, at least. But if we continue to get more productive year by year, we are going to be a wealthy country. Um, so the debt, at the end of the day, I mean, it's never good to, let's say, default on debt. I'm not advocating that. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, that's not going to keep us from being a wealthy country. It's going to be the state of our workforce, the productivity, the skills of our workforce, our capital stock, our infrastructure. And if that stays good, that stays healthy. And I'm not saying there aren't issues there, because one could certainly raise those. But if we continue to see real productivity growth in the economy, we're going to be a wealthy country. And, you know, I'm not going to say this is trivial, but I'd say that's secondary. So I'll stop with that. When I was uh, interviewing for banking jobs 42 years ago, in time for the credit crunch of 1969, and two years before President Nixon broke the last link of the dollar to gold, I was asked by those who were interviewing me, why would a philosophy major be interested in banking? And I answered, because the abstractions of banking, money, credit, risk, and the like, are philosophically fascinating. And so they were. And four decades later, I find them even more philosophically fascinating than I did then. Of course, they're also highly interesting politically. And Chris Whalen's book 
demonstrates both of these propositions, the philosophical or broadly theoretical interest of these abstractions about which we, over time, uh, develop so many theories, money, credit, risk, uh, and the politics that go along with it. I'll say my copy of Chris's book is heavily underscored uh, with many great uh, anecdotes and thoughts and a few outrageous assertions that Chris makes. But it demonstrates the intertwining of money and politics through the entire course of US history from the beginning to now and out into the future. You could take many themes out of this, but I'll take only two to talk about a little bit. Uh, one is money and the default on government debt, or I should put that in the plural, the defaults on government debt. And the second, as has been mentioned uh, by all the others, war and money, which is an inescapable topic that we, we need to understand. So let me talk with money and the defaults on government debt. Pollock's law of finance states that if a loan cannot be paid, it will default. Um, and this is true of government debt as it is of all other kinds of debt. We have, now we have choices of different ways of defaulting. You can have explicit defaults. You can have semi-disguised defaults called reschedulings or reorganizations, and you can have implicit defaults called inflation. But if it can't be paid, uh, it will default. Uh, Chris tells us, uh, during the 1830s, speculation in land flourished with state-chartered banks providing the paper to fuel the rising land values. This investment bubble had the effect of making the states look fiscally sound because of the rising real estate prices. It may sound familiar. But this illusion of wealth and public revenue would fade. Between 1881 and 1842, Florida, Mississippi, Arkansas, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Louisiana defaulted on their debt. The first four states ultimately repudiated the debt. The others delayed and rescheduled. Uh, as a footnote to this, perhaps of interest since we're in Washington, DC, the original donation to create the Smithsonian Institution from James Smithson was in gold. The gold was actually brought over on a ship. Uh, it was then, or at least most of it, was then invested in Arkansas state bonds, which then defaulted. So most of the original donation, actually, of the Smithsonian Institution was actually lost by investing it in Arkansas bonds, a little-known footnote to history, which you might I, I recommend to you, Chris. Um, when it comes to uh, foreign debt, that debt of countries other uh, than the United States, of course, Chris reminds us, which we uh, should remember, that most of the foreign debt from World War I would never be repaid. And Chris mentioned World War I in his remarks. And there was a tremendous buildup of debt to finance uh, the incredible destruction of the First World War, the suicide of European civilization, as it was. Uh, Chris further reminds us that after the war, the 20s were taken up uh, with, as he says, the restructuring and reduction of the loans to the Allies coming out of World War I. That happened during the 1920s. And by 1931, the major Allied nations had all defaulted uh, on these debts because if debt 
cannot be paid, it will default. And uh, as Chris also adds, only Cuba, Liberia, and Finland repaid uh, their debts to the United States growing out of, out of World War I, an interesting trio of countries. Uh, this story of foreign defaults is consistent with uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff's uh, recent book, uh, this time is different, as you'll remember, which counts 250 defaults on sovereign debt around the world since 1800. Uh, Chris also, interestingly, in his book, recounts the confiscation of gold uh, from U.S. citizens in the 1930s as part of the New Deal, uh, which went along, of course, with the default by the U.S. Treasury on its own gold bonds of the day. And Chris tells this interesting story of how the Fed provided to the government lists of people who had withdrawn gold from their banks in order to protect themselves from the depreciation which was coming. Uh, here's the list of anybody who got gold, because it then, of course, became a criminal, a criminal act to own gold. And this providing of lists by the Fed to the government made me think of a line which we could imagine, let's say, a Nazi colonel in a World War II grade B, grade B movie saying, we know who you are. Uh, then there's, of course, the aforementioned unilateral going off gold in 1971, a kind of default, uh, and Chris's uh, rendition, his colorful rendition, I'll say, of the Nixon administration's monetary adventures is certainly worth a read. And then there is the work during the 1980s, particularly uh, by the Federal Reserve, on the, quote, managing, unquote, of the widespread defaults of what we then called LDCs, or less developed countries, uh, on their debts uh, around uh, the world, uh, and how the Fed uh, worked very hard to postpone recognition of these losses uh, to maintain basically fictional uh, valuations of these loans on the books of the banks. In fact, the Fed ordered, I'll add this, in fact, the Fed ordered the banks to continue lending to these countries and not to write down their existing loans. Uh, and Chris discusses the, uh, the accounting um, uh, activities, let's call them, uh, of the time. All right, this brings me to uh, war and money. Chris mentioned the Lincoln administration, and there's a good discussion of this uh, in the book. Uh, and, of course, uh, if you have a war, um, it's not only that we, we have to decide to pay for it. We have to pay for it if you have it. Uh, and the Lincoln administration was quite creative, uh, first of all, uh, as Chris mentioned, with the creation of national banks. Uh, Chris said to sell government debt, but uh, I would say more importantly, the national banks to buy government debt. The national banks were buyers of government debt who, against those bonds, then issued currency, dollar bills, national bank notes. There are, there are still in the United States existing 12 banks who are national banks in the strict definition of the National Currency Act of, of 1863 to finance the war, who buy government bonds and against those bonds issue currency. They are, of course, the 12 Federal Reserve Banks. Uh, so that, that idea, the idea of the Lincoln administration and, and, and Salmon Chase, and also, of course, another notable proponent of that uh, discussed in the book is Senator John Sherman, the brother of the 
of the famous General William Tecumseh Sherman, who were, were they knew very they knew exactly what they were doing with the national banks in order in order to finance the war. And then, of course, there's the Lincoln administration's greenbacks and uh, legal tender uh, acts, which uh, which Chris discusses, uh, which said you must <clears throat> you must accept this paper because it's a legal tender. I think we've lost the sense of what legal tender means, which we always see printed on dollar bills. This is this bill is legal tender, which means you must you must accept it. Uh, at the time, of course, it was highly controversial, as, as the book discusses. Um, the Greenbacks, during the Civil War, as Chris recounts, uh, went to a free market value of a discount of more than 50% against the dollar. So the, the Greenback went to a discount. Uh, there are two ways we could describe that phenomenon. One is that, which is what they said at the time of the Civil War, well, the, the paper dollars have gone to a discount. Uh, an equivalent way of saying the same thing is the price of gold has gone up. Now, in those days, they said the price of paper dollars has gone down. Today, we say the price of gold has gone up. Those, those are equivalent statements analytically, but they represent a huge change in the psychology uh, of finance and how we think about it. Uh, then they're uh, coming back to World War uh, I. There is not only the uh, uh, lending uh, uh, by, the, by the US government to the Allied powers, but as uh, Chris says, uh, the House of Morgan and the other banks were vigorous in promoting the debt of the Allied powers to American uh, investors. And of course, the biggest borrower uh, from the US uh, was Great Britain. And Chris has this interesting comment. Great Britain once considered the second best sovereign credit risk after the United States. Actually, Great Britain once was considered the best sovereign credit risk. Um, defaulted on every foreign loan it contracted since the end of the Boer War in 1902. Uh, either by currency devaluation, uh, rolling over, suspension, rescheduling, uh, repudiation, reduction, uh, cancellation, or being forgiven, all these modes uh, in which Pollock's law of finance can play out. So this uh, notion of what happened to the credit of Great Britain uh, is, in, in my view, uh, exceptionally important because as also discussed in the book, this represents the shift of the center of global finance from London, from Great Britain, to New York, to the United States, and of course, equally, from the pound sterling to the US dollar. And this shift has now lasted almost 100 years. Uh, almost, for almost 100 years, uh, we have lived in the uh, in the dollar world. The book ends uh, with the interesting question, is, is 100 years as long as we get? And are we uh, in a transition to a different international currency system? Which reminds us with a, uh, uh, of uh, uh, another fundamental point, which is the politics of money are never only national politics. Politics of money are always international politics about the relationship uh, among states as well, and it is certainly 
uh, an interesting uh, future to try to imagine how this will develop uh, as we go forward, giving Chris plenty of future material for the next book. Thank you. Well, before we open it up to questions, I want to see if Chris wants to respond to any of the comments from his discussions. If not, we can go directly to questions. Well, one point I have to make to my new friend who I, I must differ with on this is uh, a point I wrote about in a column I, I write for uh, Reuters.com, and that is that you know it's fine to legislate outcomes in terms of public policy. It's fine to legislate price stability and full employment. But this notion that you can use public spending to somehow create employment that would not otherwise exist, I think, is a frightfully dangerous notion. Or as I put it in my column, Keynesian economics, or neo-Keynesian, really, to be fair to the great man, uh, loses its appeal when you can't borrow any more money. And then we all become Republicans again. And I say this not in an aggressive or a cynical way, but in a very sincere way, because I don't think at the end of the day that we can replace uh, real economic activity, no matter how productive we are, uh, with monetary emissions. I think we have to be ready to tell people that there may not be a job waiting for them today. They may not be entitled to have a government-paid job waiting for them today. And why do I say this? Well, look at Japan a country which has refused to adjust, which has refused to acknowledge fiscal anything. I think they are headed to default. I do a lot of work in Japan. I have clients there. And they are people who are wonderful and ingenious, but incapable of making decisions on a collective basis that hurt members of the village, if you understand that Japan is a big village. At the same time, here in the United States, we have created expectations on the part of our people that the federal government will always be there no matter what. So you saw Barack Obama today announce that he's bailing out the states to take the burden of their unemployment uh, payments off of their balance sheets, which they cannot pay. Even the stronger states. I spent a lot of time in Indiana. They can't pay. So I think we have to revisit this whole notion of full employment. And I think we have to have a very honest conversation with our people about this, because the country that does this first will be the one that is the most competitive. The country that drags its feet and picks its countrymen's pockets to simply pretend that we have opportunity for those countrymen who are less fortunate, I think, is on the road to hell. Because where does it take you? It takes you to chartalism. Chartalism is an economic concept that says, well, the government should just spend money. They don't have to tax. They can just create dollars and spend. Where does this lead you? It leads you to Orwell's nightmare, described in 1984. It obviates property. There's no need for property if the government's just going to spend, right? And everybody in this room should know what I'm talking about. So I don't see government spending as a solution. And when you talk about productivity, remember, we get productivity gains through technology and by eliminating employment. So I think there's an inconsistency in that argument as well. Uh, thank you, Chris. And I, and I should note, I think another constant theme running through the book is uh, a rejection of basic Keynesian macroeconomic policy. So that's certainly one of the things that comes out of the book. Uh, let me take the prerogative of the uh, moderator and actually ask the first question, which is there is an underlying tone to the book. I mean, when I was reading it throughout much of it, I would, al I would almost say is sort of 
depressing and pessimistic. It's sort of, you know, every time we've come to this sort of fiscal situation before, we've essentially printed, uh, printed our way out of it. Uh, and in fact, one of the reasons that I often will say that why I don't see inflation and the numbers being high, it's hard not to see inflation in the medium and the long term because that's how we've always dealt with the situation right. we're in today. Right. Um, but you end the note on a, you end the book on a fairly positive note, at least in my opinion, from from the from the reading of it. So let me ask you: uh, Are you fairly po- are you optimistic that uh, we simply won't get out of our current situation via the printing press? Oh no, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> a few years ago, walking out of one of the House office buildings after watching a reconciliation markup with my father, Richard Whalen. He turned to me and said, Christopher, I was very concerned about fiscal issues at that point. And he said, Christopher, it is the duty of this generation to pass the bubble on to the next generation <laughs> intact. I've also written quite a lot about why we should make common cause with the Irish and their woes in the real estate sector, because ultimately a free society has to allow fraud. Okay? If you get to the point where people can't make mistakes and where they cannot commit larceny and great acts of optimism, which one could disguise, for example, on, on Wall Street or in the real estate sector as reasonable acts, then we live in Norway. And I love the Norwegians. I think they're wonderful people. But they have basically outlawed bad decisions. From drunk driving to corporate practices, the entire society is deterministic. It is locked down. And it's like living in the Matrix, if you're familiar with that modern-day film. <laughs> I see America as digging our way out of this mess, having a very messy, very inefficient conversation. Remember checks and balances. We're not looking for efficiency here, kids. We're looking for inefficiency. And out of that process, we are going to do what we always do, which is basically set the direction of our country based on demographics, based on our external relationships, and also based on opportunity. You know, I think Americans, because they are free, are much better at coming up with new ideas to sell to other people, usually in other countries. Uh, you know, so I, I am not that pessimistic, really. I, I tend to be much more optimistic than you might think. But look, I cover the banking industry. <laughs> we haven't been having much fun lately. Uh, but I'm getting more optimistic, although if we start talking about foreclosures, I might head back down that bad road. Mark, could I make a comment there? Yes, because I, I take... The uh, an important theme of Chris's book as highly optimistic. That is to say, look at I can chronicle these monetary uh, adventures and misadventures for two and a half centuries or so with all of this stuff going on, including the frauds, which is uh, fraud is an inevitable accompaniment of of booms and bubbles, uh, and yet over this whole time. On the trend, we're all getting better and better off, and richer and richer, and healthier and healthier, and better, better educated, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's the uh, that's a, a, another way to read the book. That's that's highly optimistic. Look at all these misadventures, and yet look at what it does over trend uh, over time. On the trend, we're in great shape, and I see no reason to think that will stop. Well, let me open it up to questions. Um, right here. My name is Stephen Shore. My question is, we have seem to have had bringing back this debate that 
was we, that the, the election in 1932 was all about, with Herbert Hoover being terrified that Americans would be irretrievably corrupted if they were tainted with government employment. And even if you accept, in theory, that the purest jobs are those created by the glorious private sector, I'm reminded of the saying that, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. So let us say if the government were to um, turn its back de definitively on Keynes, balance the budget, and the unemployment rate were to go from 9 to 12 or 15 percent, mm -hmm. unless you took away the suffrage from those who lost their jobs mm -hmm. in a democracy, isn't there essentially a constant need for government um, taking action to prevent or it appear to prevent rising unemployment? And similarly, no one has spoken about homes. That we, just as um, um, Huey Long said, every man a king, we have the unofficial motto, every American a homeowner, even though, and right. but if we move to a stage where the only people who could uh, um, buy homes are those who could afford them, wouldn't this also have an impact of people who would conclude right, quite rightly that they would never own homes and might become radicalized as a result. Well, you raise good points, but the way I see it is a little different. I, I see most of the expansion in home ownership, employment, a, a function of the sales ethic in America. Uh, I have a book on Ford that was actually my first project that I'm going to finish next, and I talk a little bit about it in this book, the example of GM, where you had financing to pull sales from the future into the present, and Ford, which was run on cash. Henry Ford paid everyone in cash, in fact, even his suppliers. Those two models, I think, address your point, which is that on the one hand, America has used leverage, has used debt, has used government spending to generate economic activity. But I still don't think that solves the basic issue, which Alex raised and I talked to in the book, which is, are we back in the 1920s, where a combination of technological innovation, communications, we're starting to allow nations to compete with one another, not just regions and cities. We actually had imports from the U.S. as a major political issue, in the, or from Europe, rather, as a major political issue in this country. So if you think of us today facing a world that has been rebuilt, a world where a lot of the capital that originally came to this country from Europe during World War I and World War II has now gone to Asia and now gone to other emerging nations, Brazil. What do we do in a world where it is entirely competitive? Do governments just subsidize that portion of the workforce that can't be employed in the private sector, if we even have a private sector anymore? See, I think that's the tough challenge for us. We have to have the courage to say no. Even if it causes a short-term pain, I think our country will be better off. Because if we just go down the road of ensuring everybody outcomes, then we, we won't be a democracy anymore, will we? We will end up as a heavily armed authoritarian state where you don't even get to read about discussions like this anymore. Well, Bert. Bert. He threatened to come. <laughs> uh, Bert Ely, a banking consultant. Uh, this is a question for, for Chris that others on the panel might want to respond. Uh, the last time I checked, um, the, the federal government uh, doesn't uh, try to control either the price or the quantity of uh, toothpaste or breakfast cereals. 
Why is it necessary to have a Federal Reserve or any federal agency involved in trying to influence the price or the supply of credit in the economy? Answer is easy, it's not. <laughs> I, I learned from Alex, but I totally agree. You know, we have to remember that the Bank Holding Company Act is the last vestige of Glass-Steagall, which we haven't gotten around to. Uh, regulation, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in my book on the silverites. And I didn't do this because the silver movement was about money. And I didn't do it because the silver movement was even about economics. It wasn't. It was a religious movement. It was a Calvinist movement that sought to use government to make people good. It was a horribly bigoted, anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic movement. You know, my parents and their ancestors came to this country from Ireland. We were painted as monkeys in newspapers 100 years ago. So, you know, let's remember that, you know, the progressive promise of regulatory outcome and no risk, I think, has failed enough that we should know that it's a false promise. And the question is, can we cut through the layers of of uh, corruption and just ossification in the banking industry and get the Congress to do what you and I have talked about, Bert, which is to let non-banking companies into the banking sphere. Banking is not special. It's a commodity. We could set up a couple servers in my garage tomorrow and start a bank, okay? Everything out there is a la carte. You can set up a bank virtually now. Do we really need to protect these? entities with the Fed and the Comptroller and all of these lobbying organizations that supposedly regulate them. My friend Bob Feinberg, who's sitting here in the front row, would say they're what? Irregulators. But, but that's, you know, look, all I can say is we are a function of our past. Part of our past is this wonderful Calvinist tradition. We've got to realize that there's a silverite underneath every agency in Washington. I will defend uh, the central <laughs> banks uh, here and elsewhere. Um, I would just say I think there's a pretty good track record, as much as I've criticized uh, the Fed and other central banks. I would say that if you look at the period where we've had active central banks, uh, let's say post-World War II, um, that does look like a period of much greater stability, much lower unemployment than the prior period. No, it's artificial. And I haven't seen, the, uh, you know, Norway, uh, I don't know, I don't think it looks like a heavily armed authoritarian state. I was there not that long ago. It, didn't seem that way to me. So, um, you know, I just, I'm afraid I don't see the risk to our liberties from that. Yeah, but let, let me interject. The post-war period is, presents analysts and economists with the same problems that financial analysts have with modeling in the last 10 years. If you don't recognize that the post-war period was an artificial period of stability, when we had destroyed most of the world, and then out of generosity and internationalism first, and then a desire for Cold War stability and competitive outcomes, we financed the rebuilding of the rest of the world. So of course it was stable. We associated the gold and the dollar. They were equal, explicitly. There was no issue. We didn't have to argue about money anymore, either in this country or internationally. So of course it was stable. But I think we have to look beyond that time frame in the same way that I lecture my young friends and professional risk managers that if you model only 10 years, you're going to be wrong. You've got to go back 30 years, 40 years in this country to do credit cycle modeling. And I think in the same way, we cannot assess the success of the Fed based on the post-war period. We had more growth before we had the Federal Reserve. We had a more volatile growth, but that's the trade-off. You can cut the ends off the risk curve and have malaise, and it'll look beautiful. 
or you can have a more volatile situation where individuals have greater opportunity. I'll take the volatility. Just to be clear, I was saying 60 years, not 10. Well, I'm saying 70. Okay, but I'm just saying yeah, yeah, that's fine. Just I'm, I'm not modeling 19, 10 13. years. I'm looking at 60. Hmm. But, uh, right. Yeah, I wonder if you could address the subject of economic literacy, especially among our politicians. And the subject was raised of, you know, politicians in Congress should have oversight on the Fed and hold their feet to the fire. But frankly, I, I listen to a lot of members of Congress, and I really wonder if they have the faintest clue <laughs> about what they're legislating. And uh, so if you could just address that. Well, nothing has changed. You notice that Twain's... Uh, uh, biography is one of the best-selling books, so he was right then and he's right now. Look, uh, members of Congress know about economics very, very much, don't they? They know how to gather money. You know, the, the, the chief position in any congressman's office now is a concierge. You come in, you deposit the funds in the little basket. It's got a green liner, much like you see in church. And then you go in and see the member. Isn't that nice? And it's been that way since the inception of the republic. I hate to say this, but it, you know, nothing has changed. If I, if I can make a... a look, a, democracy is about money as well as votes, right? If we're a free market society, you can't exclude money from politics. I, I personally think they should all wear jumpsuits, and we should have electronic <laughs> enablement, and we should be able to bid for members of Congress in real time. There you go. Oh, why not? I think Cato will support that. <laughs> and that way you can see what industry group is pressing the hardest on each member. I think this is transparency. May I generalize Chris's proposition? It doesn't matter what kind of a government you have, democratic, authoritarian, or, or any kind of government, you can't separate money on politics in any of them. Let me, uh, well, let me first say that uh, I think one of the joys of the book is that uh, if you haven't noticed it yet, Chris has quite a wit, and that really does flow through the book, and it actually, uh, several of the chapters and discussions, I mean, there's some just great one-liners in the book, so I would really encourage you to read it for that purpose. But I wanted to comment on the question, actually, having spent seven years on the Senate Banking Committee, I would 100% agree that I, I can think very few of the members of that committee who know anything about monetary policy or, or banking in general, but... I would say to me that's actually an argument for having additional oversight. Uh, most of the members of Congress don't know how HHS works or Interior or HUD, and the reason you have GAO and others actually audit those agencies is the attempt to actually educate members of Congress. So I'm actually quite optimistic, maybe naively optimistic, that having an audit of the Fed, for instance, would educate members of Congress so they could actually perform their oversight functions better than they currently do. Uh, Hi. If I could just yeah. comment yes. quickly on that, I, I just, you know, carrying that a step further, I mean, I don't expect, you know, I've talked with members, most of us have here at some point or other. I, I don't generally expect members to know a great deal about anything, but usually they have staffers, or at least you hope if we have an, a committee that's overseeing the Fed that they'll have staffers, they'll have people like Mark who do know the stuff, who can, you know, explain, you know, in, you know, sign language or whatever to their member, high info, you know, <laughs> what, you know whatever. So, 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 so that's kind of what you have to hope for. Now, in terms of the point about money, yeah, absolutely. You know, democracy's messy, any system of government's messy. I don't think there, there's a way around that. Even if, even if we get rid of the Fed, we're still going to have to have someone there who decides when the fraud's okay and when you've really gone over the line. Someone has to make that call. I don't, you know, someone has to, I think you need the government for that. I don't know. Maybe there's some other way to do that. I, I appreciate you waiting and staying. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Li Yang from Montgomery County. Yeah, I'm glad that you people point out a few problems, whether there is a uh, flaw or any economic system. 
But I don't think fraud is necessary. Instead, the fraud is a problem we have to face and we have to fix it. The current delay is a, you have a Fed that are not doing the right job, the monetary policy or fiscal policy are not based on the principle or mission they want to accomplish. It. What they are doing, if the bank doing the wrong things, you can bail them out. That's not a Fed mission. And then so if you are thinking about money, money is important, it's as a exchange means to go around, that is not the problem. The you problem, have a question? My question is, really, can you fix the, the fraud? Yeah. Can you really fix the, the moral or unlawful act? Because the banking institution, they hire people to do the wrong job, to steal or rob people's house, rob let, people's Let property. me answer your question, OK? Yeah. Thank you for your question. Look. One of the things I point out in the book is that as you get more and more government intervention in the marketplace, you allow uh, bankers to go off and do whatever they want and get paid big bonuses and then leave the company just before it fails. And then the public has to clean up the mess. Uh, the introduction of the Fed, the introduction of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation all weakened exactly the moral structures that she refers to in the banking industry. Now, today, we have banks that have higher betas. In other words, the stocks for these companies are more volatile than most stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. There's a problem here. And I would submit that it stems from moral hazard that really comes from having the government in the marketplace. Let me give you an example. Before we had the Fed, we had private clearinghouses. Each clearinghouse in each city in the United States gave banks the ability to net out their obligations to one another, greater efficiency. Then the clearinghouses started to extend credit to one another. But they couldn't do what government did. In other words, they didn't have a large government balance sheet to absorb big economic shocks. So they said, oh, well, the clearinghouses aren't going to do it. We have to have a central bank. And by then, the bankers had all decided, well, gee, that sounds kind of nice. Not only do we have, as Alex pointed out, a little fixed VIG by buying government bonds, which we can double leverage. All right, that was why national banks bought government debt. They could double leverage that asset and get a yield of 12, 15% when it was typical to make a third of that. My point is, is that every time we've tried to address a problem by introducing more and more government involvement in our economy, we're actually creating exactly the opportunities for fraud and malfeasance that that lady talks about. If the directors and officers of a bank had their full net worth on the line, they would watch things. Okay, they wouldn't let these kids go off and do stupid things the way they do it or not document a house appraisal properly. Or when the Congress came to them and said, oh, gee, affordable housing, what a wonderful idea, the industry would have said no because they would have had their net worth on the line. When I first worked at Bear Stearns, when it was still a partnership, we counted the money every night. Every managing director in that firm was responsible for all the people underneath him, for his P&L. He didn't get a bonus unless the firm made money. That's the ethic I think we have to recreate in finance. It's responsibility. Up here in the front, Mark. It's, Chris has often said that um, the monetary system is ultimately based upon trust. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering in your researches, um, has that element of trust changed? I mean, what, what trust was in 
say, 150 years ago or what it's in 100 years ago as to what it's in now and whether and to what extent that trust itself today is in danger. Well, if you want to get the short version, read the very front of the book, the quote from Hayek that says there is, you know, money when it is exposed to democratic pressures is never going to be stable. I tell my friends in the von Mises community this and they get all angry at me, but I said, look, uh, we could fix all of these problems if you want to get rid of democracy. <laughs> we could just have Stalinist authoritarianism, we'll have a pegged exchange rate, and we'll all work for the government, and there won't be any fraud except in government. All right? Uh, let me say the, the philosophical problems of money, credit, and trust uh, don't get any less, no. in my view, under a dictatorship than under a this. democracy. When, when people say to me, Chris, how do I protect my family's fortune? How do I protect my savings? I say, stay outside of the monetary system. You want to have some investments for current income, what have you. But real estate, I think, is still a very good asset and physical commodities. Now, the government can always take them if things get really hairy. Somebody mentioned price controls. Go back and reread the 40s and the 30s in this country and look at the price controls we had coming out of the war. Herbert Hoover was Mr. Price Controls during World War I. He then went after the Democratic nomination in 1920s, kiddies. Don't ever forget that. I, I cringe when I see Democrats going after Herbert Hoover when they controlled the Congress during that whole period. Let me quote, can I just quote a socialist here? Uh, George Bernard Shaw uh, wrote sometime, uh, I don't quote him, some, sometime in the uh, 1930s, uh, you can trust Ladies and gentlemen, he said, you can trust the uh, natural virtue and wisdom of the members of the government, or you can trust the natural stability of gold. With all due respect to the members of the government, I advise you to trust gold, uh, wrote Shaw. Now, the problem is, in, under, underneath that statement, as in a lot of our discussion, there is a longing for an absolute standard uh, or frame of reference. Let us to say, let's, let us put it this way, there's a longing for a Newtonian monetary universe. And the fact is that such standard does not exist. We're in an Einsteinian, the, the truth is, we're in an Einsteinian monetary universe where there are only things moving with respect to each other. There are various kinds of exchange rates among these things. And, and we're always wishing to trust some unified, stable frame of reference. But I'm sorry to report it doesn't exist. And that's a conclusion you could get from reading Chris's book. I, I think we've got time for about two more questions. So we'll take one of them. Chris, this is an easy one for you. Um, do you think it's? Do you think that we can expect to see our government uh, get away from too big to fail? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it, it's, it goes back to Alex's point. We we have free enterprise market discipline for little banks and their shareholders and their bondholders and their vendors, but the big banks, oh no, we can't let them go because they're special. Only until we realize that banking is a commodity and that Walmart and GE and the other non-banks would do it better are we going to get real competition. <laughs> you didn't do too well. that, 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 to me, is how you fix it. OK, 
I believe we have time for a, a final question right here. My question is, is deflation avoidable? And if it is avoidable, is it avoidable in a sustainable and desirable way in the short term? Well, I, I don't believe in economic management, so let's just preface my comments uh, that way. Uh, no, I want deflation. Deflation is good for somebody, right? A family loses their home. Terrible. Another family is going to buy that house for pennies on the dollar or an investor. Or, and then maybe the investor is going to sell it to a family for 10 cents on the dollar. That's typically what happens in foreclosures. So, no, you want both. If you try and cut the ends off the, the oscillations in the wave, then you're making our society less free, and I don't think that's where we want to go. Even though there's an appealing stability, everybody says, oh, good, the world's not going to end today. Well, you pay a price for that sense of security. It's not real security. It's a perception. I think we're better off with the volatility. Oh. Well, with that, I want to, and lest we have, the, uh, with that, I want to thank the audience, and I want to thank all of our speakers, and I want to welcome you upstairs to the Winter Garden for lunch. <laughs>